Father, as our maker, as creator of heaven and earth, we who are your creation come to you in humility and thanksgiving. We're so grateful that you have loved us. You have sent your son into the world to become one of us, to understand our nature, to then create in us a heart to be responsive to you and to give us your word, your instructions to us on how we are to live, how we are to believe, what our attitude should be. And I ask that your word will continue to shape us. I thank you for what you have done in each heart and life, how you've created in us a desire to be faithful, a desire to love those around us and cause them to know the truth even as we have come to know it. May that truth live in our hearts today and may it be further revealed in our study. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we're beginning the 48th chapter of Genesis today. So we have uh, 48, 49, and 50 to go to complete our study of Genesis. Let's uh, begin with chapter 48 at verse 1. Read the first seven verses. Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. When it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples. <clears throat> and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. Now as for me... When I came from Paden, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Jacob felt that his last days were upon him, I, I suppose, you know, once you've lived 147 years, most of us will probably never know what that feels like, but... Once you have, uh, and, and the time for the end begins to come, you, you sense it. And you understand that uh, God's call is upon you to go on to your reward, I suppose we could say. Joseph sensed, Jacob, Jacob sensed that, and so he sent a message to Joseph there in Memphis. Now we have to always keep the map of Egypt in our mind if we, if we can. And, and realize that Memphis was located approximately at the point where the Nile begins to distribute itself into the many distributaries that carry through the, uh, the Delta area out to the Mediterranean Sea. And Goshen is up on the east side in the Delta itself, about halfway between that point of the division of the river and the Mediterranean Sea. And we noted before that uh, probably it would be about a five-hour trip by chariot uh, for Joseph to go from, from Memphis out to Goshen 
where his father was living. So it's, it's not a really difficult journey. The messenger told Joseph that his father was chalah, which is the Hebrew, which means sick or weak. We would probably translate that word as failing. Your father is failing, and, and we use that commonly today. So Joseph hurried to, to collect his two sons. He went home, got his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, or in his vocabulary, Manasseh and Ephraim, because Manasseh was the elder of the two, and uh, gathered them together and uh, took them with him because he wanted them to be in on the patriarchal blessing. Very, very important in the society of that day, to be in on the patriarchal blessing. It was more than, you know, you, you kids have been nice kids, I'm sure, I sure hope you'll grow up to be decent gentlemen, you know, type thing before you die. It was an official time, an official ceremony that the patriarch would uh, carry out over his sons and his grandsons before he died. And, and we will be reading about that in this chapter and, of course, in 49 and 50, well, particularly 49 and carrying over into 50 also. As soon as Joseph arrived, whoever was attending Jacob, we're not told who was attending Jacob, but whoever was doing that informed Jacob that his son Joseph was there. And the scripture tells us that Jacob gathered up his strength. He didn't want to be found prostrate on his bed. And so he got his strength together and sat up so that he could face his son Joseph in this time, special uh, time. This scene, I hope, as, as we read it this morning and as you have read it, you have noticed the drama that's here. This is a climactic scene. It's, you know, it's the end of the, of the saga of, of Jacob. And the, uh, the mantle is being passed, the baton is being passed, whatever you know, parallel you want to use uh, to the next generation. And this event, I think, is described for us in detail, not only so that we will remember it, but so that it the impact it made on Joseph and Manasseh and Ephraim would be obvious to us. This, this scene would be etched on their memories. They would remember it for the rest of their lives. Joseph and his two sons were then ushered into the presence of Jacob. What's interesting is that Jacob doesn't mumble around and, and hem and haw. He gets right to the point. He begins to recount the past. Not in great detail, but account, he recounts the past that was particularly poignant for him at this point, at uh, this moment in time. He recounts the promise that El Shaddai had made to him at Luz. Now, Luz was located in central Canaan, north of the current city of Jerusalem, in the hill country. Jacob would rename the place Bethel, House of the Lord. And he had seen a vision of God there, and the latter, you remember, going up and down to heaven before he went to Paden Aram. And then coming back from Paden Aram, after he'd had his encounter up there at Shechem, where his two sons had massacred the male population of Shechem, and he moved south from there, he returned to Bethel. And there he had another vision from the Lord. 
And in these two visions, he has the repeated promise which he is leaning on here at this particular time. He treasured the promise of God that from him would come a company of peoples. Uh, it's probably not real easy for us to relate to this in our day. Most of us probably have not had the dream that we would be the father and the mother of, of a great family that would number into the hundreds and thousands. And, you know, it wasn't our vision to become patriarchs of some tribe. But it was for Jacob. It was for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because God had promised that from them would come a nation that would bless the earth. And that was the promise, of course, made to Abraham and through Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, to Joseph, and on down through until Messiah would come and Messiah would be the fulfillment of that blessing. And so for, for Jacob to know that he was going to be the father of a great nation, that from him would come a great tribe, was, was the greatest blessing he could even conceive of. Particularly since, as we've already noted, his father Abraham, through, with his wife Sarah had had only really one child. And Isaac, Jacob's father, had had only two. And, and now Jacob has had the 12 sons. And uh, so Jacob is beginning to see this fulfillment. And so he treasured this promise. It was, it was so important to him to remember this uh, promise that God had made that he would make of him a great nation and he would give to him to his descendants, that is, Canaan as an everlasting possession. Now, we have to understand, when the scripture talks about Canaan as an everlasting possession, that you're not just talking about a physical piece of property, but you're talking about a concept here of the land of promise. Because Israel itself is not going to be an everlasting land. Because scripture tells us that heaven and earth will be destroyed one day and will be replaced by a new heaven and a new earth. So it's the concept of the land to which we all are looking for, for which we are all looking, that, that promised land which we call, of course, heaven. So the concept is tied up in, in this promised land idea here. At the end of his life, Jacob valued God's promise more than he valued the promise when he first met God at at Bethel, and even then when he met God again at Bethel 20 some odd years later, he now in his dying hours treasured the promise far above any earlier moment in his life because that promise gave him a sense of purpose in this life. It gave him a sense that his life had meaning, that he had spent these 147 years for a specific eternal purpose that he had walked in God's ways and achieved God's purpose. His life was not meaningless. There's nothing more sad than to review the life of the individual who on his or her deathbed feels as if their life had no meaning, was purposeless, was useless, accomplished nothing, Nothing to show for the years lived on this planet. That's a very hopeless condition. And that's the condition in which most people die. You know, they're 
to me, it's, it's just amazing when you think about the fact that you can sit down in front of the television set and watch a newsreel filmed half a century ago, and you can see, for example, Franklin Delano Roosevelt speaking to you right off the tube. Or, you know, all, all types of people. And to realize those people are dead. I mean, they're gone. They're not in this life anymore. And, and yet, you're seeing them and hearing them. It's, it's just kind of an amazing thing. It, the concept behind it, to me, is amazing. He, though dead, yet speaketh, if you will. But to realize that many of those people who you look at on television are not only dead, but they're gone in terms of, of any value on this planet. And, and their life never was valuable on this. I'm not talking about FDR, but many of the people, <laughs> many of the people whose lives are represented on celluloid did not live a life that had any eternal value. And, and you know where they are now, and it's a sad, sad thing. But not so for Jacob. This gave Jacob a peace of mind so that he could die with dignity. Now, that might not seem like a very important thing, but the closer we get to the moment of death, I think the more important that becomes, to know that we can die with dignity. And we're all headed that direction. You now, as it's been often repeated, uh, we are all terminal, <laughs> you know, in one sense or another. And to, to be able to die with dignity, to die with that knowledge that we have been a part of God's plan, there's just no way to describe how important that is compared to the life which has no hope. The person who, who perishes from this planet having no sense of having contributed anything of lasting value. I think it's therefore important for us to learn from this scene. The scriptures repeatedly say, for example, that our lives are like the flower of the field that blossoms in the morning and then in the afternoon heat kind of withers up and dies. Or we're told that our life is like a vapor. We're just kind of there for a moment and poof, we're gone. Now, why does the scripture say that? The scripture does not say that for the purpose of implying that our lives are worthless and useless. That is not the point at all of those passages. Those passages are there. They're printed in the word. They were given by God so that we might see the real purpose of life and realize that it's working for eternity that matters and that we're not gathering up treasure on this earth that's going to be lost or destroyed ultimately. You, know, you read the book of Ecclesiastes, for example, and Solomon makes it clear, you know, why should I gather all this great wealth together just to leave it to those who are going to follow behind me? Now, I'm not arguing against uh, estates or that we shouldn't write wills to, to leave to our children whatever we have left in this world at all. But if our whole goal in life was just to build an estate with no sense of eternity, then our lives have been a vapor with no meaning. Those passages are there specifically to keep our focus correctly, to realize that we're living for eternity, not for time. Now, when it comes to the, the issue of purpose, the scripture has many things to say about the meaning of life for God's children. All the way from Revelation, well, let's go backwards. From Revelation to Genesis, the scripture gives us purpose, talks of the meaning, 
speaks of the meaning of life for God's children. And it's very, very clear. You and I all have a vital role to play. The true child of God, no matter how young, how old, how educated or how uneducated, uh, rich or poor, white or black, uh, living in some valley in an unknown part of the world or holding an important political position in a powerful land, it doesn't really matter. All of those persons, if they're children of God, have a purpose in God's plan. They have a role to play. No one is expendable in that sense. And I think it's very important for us to remind ourselves of that. We each have a vital role to play. And we have a tendency to think, well, the pastor has a vital role to play. You know, the song leader has a vital role to play. The, the uh, soloist has a vital role to play. But, you know, who am I? I'm just sitting in the, in the chair. Uh, I, I'm not doing anything. Well, I hope that's not true, you know. Uh, the one thing that we can all do to contribute forever to God's plan is to be people of prayer. And there's not a human being alive who is a child of God who can't pray. And there probably is no greater contribution we can make because pastor can't preach worth a hoot if people aren't praying. I can't teach this class and have any valuable contribution to make if people don't pray. The, the soloist it might as well go out and sing into the wind if people aren't praying. Because God responds through prayer. And we've, we've talked about this before. Don't ask me to explain why that is that God does that. He has chosen to work that way. He's chosen to work in response to our concern to the point that we are willing to pray. And as we do so, God brings about his plan and his purpose. And in that sense, we all can be major contributors to God's plan. And then in many other ways. I mean, your life touches others, whether it be at work or at play, whether it be at school or at home, wherever it might be, your life touches other lives. And Christ somehow, if we're, if we're endeavoring to live faithfully to him, Christ somehow shows himself to other people. And uh, they'll say, you know, Someday they may come up to you and say, you know, why is it you're different? <laughs> you may never have given an overt witness to somebody, but that day may come when you have opportunity because they, why are you different? There's something about you, you know. Your attitudes are different. There's just something about you that I see that's not like everybody else. And then you have that overt opportunity. But all of those are vital roles to play in God's plan. We are all gifted Everyone in this room has a gift, or more gifts than one maybe, and we're all empowered by the Spirit of God who lives within us to carry out that part of God's plan that he has given to us. It's really, I think, important, just to kind of repeat myself here, to realize that our role in God's plan does not have to be a spectacular one. It doesn't have to be an upfront-of-everybody type role background roles are very important because up front's meaningless without the background. In 1 Corinthians 12, we're told that there are varieties of gifts, varieties of ministries, varieties of effects, but 
to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Each one, each individual has been given a manifestation of the Spirit of God for the good of the whole body. Further down in the same chapter in 1 Corinthians 12, we read, God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. If we don't feel that we are useful or needful in the body or in God's plan, it, it could be, and I, I trust it's not for anyone here, but it could be that we're walking in disobedience, that we're not walking the way that God has set before us, that we have rebelled against what God has said to us. And in that sense, we're going to have a feeling of purposelessness suddenly because we know we're not walking in the way that he has set before us. But if we are, as best we know how, endeavoring to walk in his way, we are faithful people. That doesn't mean we don't sin. It doesn't mean we don't fail. We all do that. But if our desire is to go his way and we're doing those things that we know we ought to do as much as possible, then it's, pos it's possible, therefore, that we don't feel that we're useful because, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we see in a mirror darkly. We don't really see what's happening. We don't see God's plan as he sees it. That passage goes on to say, but then, face to face, now I know in part, but then I shall know fully just as also I have been fully known. It's going to be so wonderful when we get on the other side, so to speak, when we go into the presence of the Lord and he says, now this was what I was doing through you, and all of a sudden the lights go on. Oh, that's what it was all about. It says he wipes away all tears. I mean, there are times when we have blown it. But God knew that before we ever blew it. You know, God's never surprised. Oh, no, I didn't plan on him doing that. All we have to do is go back to Genesis, the first three chapters, and, and we know that God knew it all from the beginning, and he did it anyway. So uh, when God saved you, he saved you knowing you were going to fail here and you were going to fail there, so there's no use kicking yourself around the block. The thing to do is repent and uh, confess and uh, then walk on in the way that he has set before us. The true believer, I hope, as we as all true believers can say with Paul, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. A couple of passages I thought would be good for us to turn to for a moment. One of them is in Galatians 2.20, which probably many of you have memorized. But I memorized it in the King James, and since I'm using the NASB, I will read it. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. We all have been crucified with Christ. The problem is sometimes we forget that. And, and we crawl down off the cross, as it were, and we try to go ahead and live in the flesh. And it doesn't work. Because it's the life of the Son of God lived through us that makes a difference in this world. And we're to be empowered by Him. And our lives are to be the channel 
of blessing. And that's, of course, what we're talking about here in the life of Jacob. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Colossians 3, 23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. <clears throat> Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Now to me it's really important that we do not interpret this verse solely within the framework of the church. That we say, okay, I'm going to teach a Sunday school class, so I'm going to do it hardly under the Lord. I'm going to sing in the choir. I'm going to do it hardly under the Lord. I sure hope so. But it also means on your job at your workplace. Do you work for God rather than for the boss? Or do you do like so many of the other employees? As soon as the boss is not around, you start kicking back and, and doing as little as possible. One of my sons-in-law, who's back in New Jersey, works for United Parcel Service. And he's been having a really difficult time back there because whenever the supervisors aren't around, the guys he's working with sit down and do nothing. And this mounts the pile up for him because he's not that way. He feels he ought to do uh, the best job he can. And so it's really stressing him <laughs> because these other guys rag on him. Because, you know, he becomes kind of like, I don't know if you're familiar with Russian history, but uh, a man by the name of Stakhanov. You go back to the days of Stalin, and Stalin was trying to convince everybody that collectivism was good, and that uh, we all, you know, that all of those who are under collectivism ought to work hard because it's for the common good. Well, that's a nice concept. The problem is that if you don't see something in, for it, in it for you personally, you're not going to work all that hard just if it's only for the common good, unless you're a true believer. But this guy Stakhanov, for some reason, was motivated, and he was a coal loader. And he got in the coal mine and he loaded coal like a madman all day long. And he set, uh, you know, the standards for how much coal should be loaded in a day. And he became the enemy almost every working man. Because suddenly now they're supposed to match this standard and they didn't feel like it because there was no motivation to do it. We should be Christian Stakhanovs at work. And we should be the kind of individual, whatever we're doing, we're doing it for Christ. We're not doing it for the boss or the company or anybody else. And that's what it's talking about here. That, that's what makes us different. And people will see, wow, you know, there's something in this guy's life. Now, they may not like you for a while, especially if you make them look bad at work. But, you know, what's the alternative? Be like everybody else. And if Christ is in us, we can't really do that. In spite of our many failures, if we are honestly seeking to walk in obedience, there's no reason why each of us cannot die with dignity as Jacob did. To have that sense of fulfillment, that sense of completion, that sense of having, as Paul said, run the race and achieve the prize because we ran the race well. I mean, Paul had to admit that he fell down in the race here and there he got off the track a little bit, and we say, oh, no, not Paul. Well, it even shows up from time to time in the past, in Scripture, you know, where he had a run-in with a fellow Christian. You know, and he wouldn't even take John Mark with him. 
because the kid had blown it before and he wasn't going to give him a second chance. Well, wait a minute, Paul. <laughs> You've been given a second chance and a third and a fourth. And John Mark apparently turned out to be a very wonderful person. I mean, a godly man. You know, Paul was not perfect by any means. And yet he could say, I have run the race. You know, I, I have achieved the prize. I've reached the goal. And I think all of us can think that with Paul. In the fifth verse of this uh, passage in Genesis 48, we have a key verse to understanding something of the future. He says, And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. Now, Reuben and Simeon were his oldest sons. Reuben was his firstborn. So what we're seeing here is the picture of what will become the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob is adopting his grandsons here as his sons. Ephraim and Manasseh are being put on equal footing with Reuben and Simeon. Now, this is important for later understanding because when uh, the 12 tribes are named later and, and they come out in the Exodus, you'll discover that there is no tribe of Joseph specifically, so that eliminates one. And then Levi becomes the tribe of priests and they no longer have a one-twelfth portion, so that eliminates two. So how do you replace the two that are taken out? Well, with Ephraim and Manasseh. And so that gives you the 12 again. And this is the 12 that you find down through history since that time. In raising Ephraim and Manasseh to equality with the other, with, with his sons, Jacob was in effect giving to Joseph the birthright of the firstborn. These two boys were given equal share in the inheritance. They were given, in effect, one-twelfth of the inheritance that Jacob was leaving behind. And, of course, the inheritance wasn't so much the sheep and the goats and the camels and the donkeys and the tents and everything, but was the promise, the promise of Canaan. In the scripture, you discover that the firstborn was to receive a double inheritance. All the others would e receive equal shares, but the firstborn received a double inheritance. And this is what we're seeing here. By making Ephraim and Manasseh co-equal with the other brothers, their uncles in effect, Joseph was receiving a double inheritance. This is literally spelled out for us in 1 Chronicles chapter 5. 1 Chronicles chapter 5, first two verses. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, parentheses, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. This is Reuben. And in addition, though Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came the leader, Messiah, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. So I haven't been making up this stuff. <laughs> it says it right there. 
Reuben surrendered the birthright by being, as Jacob would later, later say, as unstable as water. You never know what he's going to do next. And Judah, although he emerged as the spiritual leader of the brothers, and it was he who, who led the encounter with Joseph down in Egypt, and through him would come Messiah, yet he also did not receive the birthright, but Joseph did. And we see this in the double inheritance given through Ephraim and Manasseh. There's an interesting little sidelight here, by the way. In the statement that Ephraim and Manasseh were born before Jacob came to Egypt. This gives us some idea of the age of these two young men. Now the reason I make this a point is you've all been given little Sunday school booklets. And you probably all, all read these Bible story booklets with illustrations in them. And almost always they picture Ephraim and Manasseh as little boys, you know, about 10, 9, 8 years old, coming up to their old grandfather Jacob and receiving this blessing. They weren't little boys. They were grown men. They were much closer to 20 than 10. In fact, they probably were closer to 25 because back in the 41st chapter, we were informed that both were before, born before the famine even came to Egypt. And since the famine probably ran three to four years before Jacob ever came to Egypt, that, you know, 17 years he's in Egypt, four years, let's say, of the famine, that's 21. They were born before that. They aren't twins, so one was born before the other, so the eldest was probably closer to 25. So we're talking about young men here who probably towered over their grandfather, you know. Not little kids. I, I just personally would like it if uh, artists who do Sunday school things would read the passage and understand it before they paint the stuff. We had years ago an old uh, film strip put out by Moody Bible Institute, and it showed the conquest of Jericho in art, artwork, you know. And it showed Israel coming up to Jericho, and the walls of that city must have been half a mile high. You know, whoa, you know, <laughs> like looking down into a well into the city around, you know, with the walls around. And it just gives, to me, children, a false conception of what's going on here. I mean, you want an idea, yeah, the wall's defensive, the wall's hard to get through, but let's make it real. <laughs> get the walls down to what they were, you know, maybe 15, 20 feet high, not 500 feet high. <laughs> and, you know, so kids are intelligent. And I think if they have a proper picture of things, it helps them to understand the Scripture a little better. It's like the David and Goliath thing. That really always bugs me. Got this little bitty David, you know, me, me, hit you with my slingshot. <laughs> David was a mature man in his middle 20s. And when it says he, he, he uh, couldn't put the armor on, it wasn't because, you know, as you've probably seen pictures with the army slopping off on all sides because he was just a little bitty kid. No. He said, because I have never fought with armor before. He didn't go clanging out there to fight in armor. He's never had armor on before. He's always been a shepherd. He killed lions and bears. I mean, he didn't need any armor on. In fact, if you've seen Michelangelo's David, the statue, which is about 17 feet tall. <laughs> David was not 17 feet tall, but that's a lot more realistic portrayal of who David was, I think, when he faced Goliath than the little 10-year-old, or whatever he is often portrayed as. 
So we're talking about mature young men who fully comprehend what is going on here. And they realize what they are receiving here. And the impact is not lost on these two young men. In the sixth verse of this same passage, it's made clear that this adoption was to apply only to Ephraim and Manasseh. It was not to apply to any other children that Joseph had after Jacob came into Egypt. Now this creates a little bit of a quandary because the scripture here does not say anything about any other children being born to Joseph in Egypt. But the wording of the passage is written in such a way that it directly implies that other children had been born. And of course, it's only logical that they had been, too. Such children were to find their inheritance under the umbrella of their older brothers. In other words, their older brothers would be elevated to the position of, in, in effect, their father, because they would inherit from their older brothers under their umbrella. That's not that their blessing wouldn't be there, but Ephraim and Manasseh would be given a special position. In verse 7 of this passage, Jacob's reference to Rachel indicates that he saw this adoption, at least in part, as a gesture of honor to his beloved wife. He is honoring her memory in adopting the grand, her grandchildren, the sons of her firstborn, as co-equal with the rest of the sons of Jacob. Now, when you think about this, had Leah and uh, Laban not tricked Joseph, uh, Jacob, and had he had his way, which he intended to marry Rachel as his wife, he had no intent of marrying Leah, and, and later on, of course, Zilpah and, and Bilhah kind of came into the picture through the sidelines. That was not his initial plan either. But had his initial plan gone forward, Rachel's firstborn would have been Jacob's firstborn and would have been the inheritor of that firstborn position and had the birthright. Sadly, of course, Rachel never lived to see the glory of her son Joseph. I guess on the other side of the coin, we have to realize she never lived to see him spirited off either and disappear and be presumed dead for, lo, those many years. So she was spared both the pain, but also she did not experience the glory of seeing her son as prime minister of Egypt. And so, by elevating Joseph to the position of the firstborn, Jacob was, in effect, according priority to Rachel for all of his descendants to acknowledge. Verse 8 of Genesis 48. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. So he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph's, Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your children as well. 
Then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. Jacob asks a question here which might be a little bit bewildering at first. He said, who are these? <laughs> you know, who are these guys over here? And we might say, he doesn't know? <laughs> I mean, he just said that I'm going to give the inheritance to these two boys. And of course, he had met them many times before. But the answer is, is given in the passage itself, at least in part. Uh, down to the 10th verse, we read that uh, Jacob's eyesight was dim. The word there in Hebrew means heavy. It implies that his eyesight was clouded. Certainly, it refers to severe cataracts. And there, in those days, there was nothing that could be done about that. Uh, apparently, therefore, all he could see was form. There's somebody else here. Who is it? You know, is what he's, what he's saying. He couldn't distinguish the face. He couldn't tell who these individuals were. Plus, plus the fact, certainly, that Ephraim and Manasseh had not grown up around Jacob. They had grown up in Memphis with Joseph. And he had seen them on occasion, but they had not been with him like all of his other grandchildren had been for all these years. So he was not as familiar with them. And it was easier for them to slip from his mind uh, at, at the moment. And so he didn't recognize them. Now we have to understand, you know, it says there in verse 8, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, and then down in verse 10 it says, now the eyes of Israel were dim, so dim from age that he could not see. We might say, now wait a minute, <laughs> how can this be? If he can't see, how do you see him? And of course the point is, it doesn't mean that he couldn't see at all. It means that he could only see you know, the form, the shape, because of his cataract condition, but he couldn't see clearly enough to understand or to identify the two young men. Joseph then informed his father, well, these are my two sons whom God has given to me. Notice how that keeps happening in Joseph's life. Whom God, whom God, whom God. Joseph is a man who is always whom Godding, if you will. Acknowledging God in everything. Just, I'm, I'm just constantly reminded of the passage in James which teaches us that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness or shadow of turning. The immutable God is the giver of all good gifts. And the scripture teaches us he loves to give good gifts to his children. We just have to get this this image of God, and I hope none of you have it, but it keeps showing up in, in uh, you know, literature and, and in the common, you know, mind of, of, of our society that God's an ogre up there just always reaching down to smack people rather than being the giver of good gifts, which is what he is. And, and Joseph acknowledges, these are the two sons that God in his sovereignty has chosen to bless me with. Sometimes I think we may forget in a moment of stress, in a moment of uh, collision, that we didn't choose our children just as they didn't choose us as their parents. But God chose to give them to us. And he knows what he's doing. 
And because he chose to give them to us, we are therefore responsible to him for their well-being and their upbringing. We're all familiar with that well-known passage in Psalm 127, verses uh, 3 to 5. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Sure isn't the way this society thinks today, is it? The fruit of the womb is a reward. It's, it's a curse in, in our society's view, and so they're constantly destroying it. That like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They shall not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Now, by the way, you have to understand that that does not mean that everybody has the same size quiver, by the way. <laughs> doesn't mean we're all supposed to have 12 sons and, you know, 12 daughters or something else like that. Sometimes God does not even gift a couple for whatever reason with children. And, and um, you know, that's in his sovereign hand. But the point of it is that we are to recognize that children are a blessing even when they seem to be going the wrong way because hopefully they will draw out of us what God wants to do in us because when they're in trouble, where can we go but to Him? In, in our own lives, uh, our, our children have helped to produce a sense of the vital need of prayer as never before. And in that way, we can at least fulfill a major part of our responsibility. That's not all there is to it, of course, by any means, but it is a big part of it. And Jacob himself had actually acknowledged his debt to God, too. Remember when he had his encounter with Esau, and Esau said, Whoa, who are all these? He said, They're my children that God has given to me. Even Jacob acknowledged that these children were a gift from God. And let me just uh, finish today by referring us to that uh, passage in Proverbs which says, Grandchildren are the crown of old men. <laughs>